Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Joining me on the show today, we have Melissa Lott back again. Melissa is Director of Research at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. Hello, Melissa. How are you? Good to have you back. Uh, What have you been doing since we heard from you last? Oh, man, a lot of different things. So it's good to see Ed and good to be on here today with you and Amy. One of the things I've been doing just in the past two days is focusing in on my syllabus for a course I'm teaching at Columbia starting in the fall on climate change mitigation, which will be really interesting. Um, going through all the literature, where would you start if you were you know, stepping someone through mitigation? It's been a lot of fun. And then I'm working on the final report that we have coming out of the Lancet Countdown, which is the work you know I do every year on climate change, how it's impacting our health, and what we can do about it. And every time I read through the full draft, I'm just reminded about how stark the data are and how clear it is that it's affecting our health already. So that's been the past few days for me, but it's, it's been a whirlwind. There's a lot going on right now. Wow, that course sounds huge. It'd be really interesting. We should get Energy Gang listeners to uh, send in their <laughs> suggestions for what you ought to be covering on your course. Do you actually do you post your course materials online? It would be fascinating to see what you're going to teach people. Yeah, no, I bet I, I think I can. I'll have to look into that because I'm starting it in the fall. So we're kicking it off in the fall as an elective course and then part of the core courses um, across campus. Well, core courses for the climate school students starting a year from now. One of the things that I'm very excited about, and this is something I think Columbia really does very well, is it's going to be cross-listed. So master students in fourth year, so seniors and undergrad from across campus can take it. So I'm hoping I get students from the climate school, from the School of International Public Affairs, where, where of course the Center on Global Energy Policy is, but also the business school and engineering. Like having that multidisciplinary group will be very fun. Um, very fun. But if anyone listening has a favorite, this is how I learned about mitigation. I was looking at Schoolhouse Rock this this weekend. I was also going to the IPCC executive <laughs> summaries. I'm all for suggestions. Please send them my way. That would be great. Comic uh, animated version of the IPCC assessment reports, maybe. That's the thing that people really Oh, I'm so in. <laughs> oh, I need someone who knows how to draw. I mean, I draw for fun, but it's terrible. And we'll never go into public uh, awful drugs. So if anyone's got skill in that, oh, that would be so much fun. Ed, to do it, like, okay, how do you break this down in a comic? Yeah, no, no, there you go. There's, there's a thought for everyone. Help wanted. Also then, uh, today we're joined by Amy Harder. Uh, back again, she's the executive editor of the Cypher newsletter, which is published by Breakthrough Energy. That's the network, which you probably know it, backed by Bill Gates and various other investors to support investment in emissions-reducing technologies. How about you, Amy? What have you been up to? Well, Ed and Melissa, it's great to see you again. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on. It's always such a pleasure. Uh, You know, I've been doing sort of a threefold type job. One, of course, I'm reporting, which is uh, the main thing I've been up to. But Also, it's been an increasingly fun mix of doing speaking at conferences, which are finally starting to pick up again as COVID hopefully stays in the review mirror. And then also we're continuing to grow Cypher. I think the last time I joined, we hadn't hired Anka Gerzu, who's our reporter based in Brussels, and we'll be uh, growing in the future. So stay tuned. Sounds great. Which conferences have you been to? Where did you go? I was at the MIT conference. I spoke at that. I was at some com- the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Conference in New York. Uh, sorry, Ed and Melissa, we didn't get a chance to catch up in person <laughs> when I was in town. Uh, and then next week, uh, I'm going to Miami for the Aspen Ideas Climate Festival. Yeah, that's all right. I'm not offended. Oh, I'll see you there. <laughs> I'll see you in Miami. That's great. Are you going to be, oh, be there, Absolutely. It'll be great. Sadly I'm talking not. about two no, panels. No, but no. it sounds, sounds really interesting. And I'm very envious of you that you are going. So got a lot to talk about uh, on the show today. As usual, an enormous amount going on in the world of energy right now. Things I want to talk about, I want to talk about uh, nuclear power question of, is it a solution to worries about energy security, or does it just make the problem worse? We're also going to be talking about California's quick peek into the future. The state's power grid ran on very, very nearly 100% renewable energy uh, over the weekend. And we're also going to be talking about something that has been coming up a lot in conversations that I've been having with people in the energy industry in recent weeks, which is worries about disruptions and cost inflation in supply chains, particularly for low carbon energy, affecting all kinds of uh, products and commodities and components, uh, everything from battery raw materials to giant wind turbines. I think that's, as I say, a very important issue in the energy business right now. 
certainly something we're going to be hearing more of over the months to come, potentially going to have big impacts in terms of what happens in investment in clean energy. Uh, so I think that's going to be well worth talking about today. But I want to start on nuclear power. Something I was really struck by last week on a very powerful image, I thought, was uh, Rafael Mariano Grossi, who is the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, visiting the Chernobyl reactor site in Ukraine. Chernobyl, of course, is still uh, one of the most potent symbols of the potential downsides of nuclear power. Certainly in Europe, I think it's the thing that everybody thinks about. And Grossi's visit was a reminder that the site remains potentially hazardous. There were reports of Russian soldiers getting sick after they'd disturbed radioactive soil there. And that uh, it was also a reminder that the war creates risks of further accidents. There was a battle at one of Ukraine's other nuclear plants, which is now held by the Russians. And the IAEA said there could have been an extremely serious accident at yet another plant when a Russian missile appeared to have flown over it at very low altitude. So we've been reminded of the downsides and the dangers of nuclear power, but at the same time, we have France, UK, several other countries talking about stepping up their programs for building new nuclear reactors as the best way to strengthen energy security without adding to greenhouse gas emissions. So first question I want to ask, and I'm interested in, in both your, your thoughts on this really, is the question of, is nuclear power really a secure energy source? Amy, start with you on this. What do you think? Does the fact that these countries have to import a lot of their uranium, their, their nuclear fuel, does that call into question the claim that nuclear power is a secure and reliable energy source? I think it's a spectrum, really. You look at oil and gas where that's, and, and coal, where those are often traded in real time without much reserves that can be shut off uh, on a turn of a dime, which we've already seen happen with a couple of countries in Europe because they apparently didn't pay in the way that Russia wanted them to pay. And so their gas resources were shut off. Uh, with, with nuclear fuel, it's a little bit different. In the US, for example, uh, nuclear fuel needs to be replaced typically once every 18 to 24 months, and that's delivered one to two months in advance. So you have, so there is, there isn't like something, you won't be able to have it the next day. Um, it's, it's a slower cycle. And so that makes it less dependent upon uh, the, the whims of one particular country than say oil and gas. But every energy resource to, to some extent depends upon this global trade world that we, we've grown accustomed to. And so nuclear power is no exception. I'll also note just one last thing on this is that uh, the, the natural uranium sources are one thing. Uh, Russia is also the dominant source of enrichment capabilities. 46% of the world's enrichment capabilities is in Russia. Um, so that's another thing that we have to keep in mind. We'll get onto this when we talk about other industries in the case of the supply chain. But that's a really interesting point I think you're making, which is that it's a globalized world. Energy is a very globalized business. And it's really hard to undo that. Resources are scattered all around the world in different countries. Consumers' sources of demand are scattered all around the world on a completely different pattern. And the idea that you can just become completely autarkic, you can just cut off the rest of the world and say, we're going to do our own thing on energy or in anything else in a modern economy, it's really hard to achieve. Precisely. And that's why the idea of energy independence was always a farce. Uh, and But with oil and gas, another impact is we're seeing prices go through the roof, which is impacting the entire world. And you don't see that as much with the uranium dependency. And also the uranium's a very different proportion of the total cost of the system, right? The, the, the cost of building a nuclear power plant and running it, the cost of the electricity that you get out of a nuclear power plant is really the cost of building the plant and safety and everything that goes with it. The actual cost of the uranium that goes into it as fuel is a relatively small proportion of the total, right? Correct. And there's a lot of other inputs that, that are at play there. Now, one thing then, we were talking about this earlier, and you mentioned a specific issue then with these uh, inputs of nuclear fuel, something called HALEU, is it H-A-L-E-U? Um, we said there are some specific issues with that in terms of supplies and availability. Can you explain what's going on there? What is, what is HALEU and why is it important? 
Yes, we pronounce it, at least I pronounce it, although I could be wrong, Hey Lou, like if somebody's name was Lou, right. you say okay. Hey Lou, uh, which stands for High Assay Low Enriched Uranium, which is a little bit of a misleading uh, phrase, but nonetheless, it means it's basically uh, a type of uranium that's enriched up to 20%, which is sort of in the middle, or it's in between uh, weapons-grade uranium, which is enriched 90% or higher, and then the current fuel today that are in reactors, which is 5% or lower. So um, it's so it's low enriched, is much lower than weapons, but still higher than current fuel. And the reason why a lot of advanced reactors, uh, technology companies like this is because it's more efficient, because it's more radioactive, and therefore you need to lose, use less of it, and therefore you have less waste. Uh, and so that's why it's the choice. Um, I think it's nine out of 10 reactors in the Energy Department's advanced reactor program that was created in 2020 need this type of fuel. Uh, and so that's uh, why it's appealing. So you mean for these new generation of reactors about which there's tremendous excitement and people are saying this may be a whole new dawn for nuclear power providing um, reliable zero carbon electricity at perhaps not the crazily inflated cost that we've seen from current generation reactors, which of course are so very, very expensive. There's a lot of hope for those new reactors, but they all rely on this HALU stuff. Right. Currently, the only commercial producer of this type of HALU fuel is in Russia. Uh, it's a company called Tenex, which is a subsidiary of Rosatom, the state-owned nuclear energy company of Russia. And so I'm actually writing a story on this for Cypher. So stay tuned. It'll be in an upcoming edition. Uh, and I, I decided to focus on this for a couple of reasons. And one reason is because HALU is sort of an extreme example of how the U.S. and really the Western world in general has is becoming dependent upon materials and technologies that are not available in the Western world. And that's a big problem, whether it's HALU or critical minerals, we're going to need to figure out a way to produce this fuel domestically to be able to rely on it. And there's a huge scramble for that right now. Yeah, right. I was just about to ask. I mean, it sounds like been a massive problem for this entire advanced reactor program. The US has said it's not going to be reliant on Russian oil and gas. It's not going to import any oil and gas from Russia. Presumably, there's no way they're going to be happy about saying, oh, we're perfectly fine to import all of our nuclear fuel for these very important new generation of reactors from Russia. So what happens? Right. Well, as of this recording, Rosatom has not been sanctioned. So technically, they could still receive it. But TerraPower, which is one of the companies that was had publicly said they would use the fuel, has publicly said they have not. The other company, the first two in line, uh, X Energy, has not publicly said that. Um, and I should say, just as a disclaimer, TerraPower is funded by Bill Gates, which is also a funder of Breakthrough Energy, which supports Cypher. I just want to... Yeah, um, yeah got it. And sorry, to be clear about that, they've said what they they have said they have not been using Russian fuel until now. They've pledged not to use Russian fuel in the future. Their plan was to use it in their process in the next seven years. But now, since the Russian invasion, they've, they've declared that they would not. TerraPower has. So now the efforts are... The two options on the table, which are neither good, one is to just very quickly build uh, domestic facilities. Um, there's one in Ohio that is sort of caught up in some bureaucratic um, contracts. Then the other option is to downblend uh, weapons-grade uranium to the level that you would need for HALU. But as I talked to somebody at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, he's like, well, that's a stupid option because it's twice as expensive for twice the work. But it might be the only option for the short term as the, the industry to make HALU domestically gets up and running. But I will add that downblending is extremely expensive, not to mention the military probably won't be too crazy about it. So there's not a lot of good options. Well, and I want to pick up on a point you're making here, Amy. So we've got the, what is it, megatons to megawatts, that whole conversation. But then on the flip side, like there's no question. There's no reason why current enrichment companies couldn't build out the facilities they need to produce HALU. But it, it's a big ask to say, hey, Urenko, hey, Centris, would you go produce this? But I can't guarantee you a market and you're going to have to go through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's licensing process. You're going to have to build out all this infrastructure, invest all that money. But uh, you know, we'll see if there's a market for you. So I mean, if I was in those companies, it would be a hard decision for me to make to move forward with that if I didn't know that. So it's like this chicken and egg problem as well. Sounds like maybe a role for government there then to step in to say, 
this is something we want to make that happen. We will put together that entire supply chain that the industry is going to need, and we'll guarantee a market for the fuel, and we'll guarantee the fuel for the reactors to make it all happen. Could that happen? It could. And in theory, that's what the energy department is trying to do as we speak. Uh, in fact, last December, before the invasion, the energy department began sort of a bureaucratic process to ask industry for ways to build up this domestic supply of HALU. Uh, now the industry is waiting for the energy department to take the next step, which is a request for proposals. But all of this, you know, there's just this slow churn of the bureaucratic process. And these two companies in particular, X Energy and TerraPower, they've accepted or they've gotten awards of up to about $2 billion each to build cost share programs to build their reactors. And they need to do that within seven years of when they got their awards, which was last year. And so we're on a tight timetable. And so I think part of the urgency here is that the energy department knows there's government money on the line and they need to follow through, in addition to just the classic chicken and the egg problem. Melissa, something you mentioned was the megatons to megawatts program, which just in case listeners haven't heard of that, might be worth filling people in. What was that? Yes, I mean, this is broadly a program to say, you know, we've got these nuclear weapons. Why don't we try to take some of them off the market, as it were, and convert them into something else that's useful, use them in our power plants? And as Amy said, you know, we can downgrade. You know, if we've got something that's really highly enriched, we can downgrade that material. It is not cheap. It is not um, easy. So I should say it's called down blending is, is the term for it. It's not cheap. It's not simple. And, you know, it's you've already paid to kind of enrich it. And now you're going to reverse that process effectively. It's it's a challenge. The question is, you know, are we going to take that? And that might be something we can do more quickly. Or are we going to be committing to a future where advanced nuclear is a part of the equation? Which going back to your energy security question, Ed, I think that's where it comes in for me where it's saying, you know, what are we trying to build out? A reliable power system. If it's not nuclear, what else is it to supply your firm dispatchable power? Because it can't be nothing, because then we have expensive power, we have unreliable power. So if it's not nuclear, okay, is it natural gas with CCS? Well, <laughs> all the points Amy just made and what we've just seen in terms of cutting off gas supplies. Okay, big hydro, we've got a changing climate, which brings us to concerns. I know the New Zealand government's already facing that with dry years, multiple dry years in a row. What do they do? But, you know, it's not, there's not a ton of options in that firm 24-7, 365 bucket. So what are we going to do? And to throw in a couple of other options, maybe it's hydrogen, maybe green hydrogen produced. Some geothermal. Yeah, geothermal, yeah. advanced storage, some of the new long duration uh, energy storage technologies that might work. Maybe. I will say on that one, I often get that, oh, we've got a 100 hour battery. We're good, right, Melissa? And I'm like, oh, we're better. We're better than we were before we had 100-hour battery. But I'm talking about two weeks, multiple times a year, where the sun's okay and the wind's okay, but not great. And so what are we going to do for those period of times? Um, we've, we've laid out you know, all these challenges facing advanced nuclear power. But to your point, Melissa, there's significant challenges facing all of these uh, different energy sources. When we talk about growing out tons of wind and solar, well, as I think we'll get into, People don't like to support those things if they're near them. And at some point, they're going to have to be near people. Okay. I hear what you say, both of you, and I absolutely accept that and accept there are all these problems and issues with all these various different technologies that you've been talking about. On the other hand, the fact that we do have quite a range of options seems potentially a positive thing because we're able to try a lot of stuff and see what works. and. Just as a general principle, we are, uh, as humans, very innovative, and we're able to take on these difficult challenges and crack them. And we've made enormous advances in all kinds of technologies through history, but also even more recently and more recently in energy. Presumably, you're not completely, I mean, going back to where we came in on nuclear, you've not completely given up hope that we are going to be able to crack some of these issues with advanced nuclear we are going to be able to see a way through where we will be able to bring these reactors in service, right? Certainly. I, I, I continue to have optimism, you know, relentless optimism, because that's what we need to have. I think, and we're seeing this across the clean tech landscape. We're seeing investments and innovations happening all over the place, and we need that. Uh, I think, 
any one any particular challenges an energy technology faces seems really daunting until you get to the next one and you see the daunting challenges facing there. And what we need to do is develop all of them and see which ones rise to the top. It's it's a risk mitigation strategy at the end of the day. And I think the question for me is where is nuclear going to deploy? Because you've got France saying we're not just going to walk away from our reactors. We are going to invest in the next generation of them. Um, in the U.S., it's a little more muddled, but you know the coal to nuclear repowering conversation is alive. It's a conversation that's happening right now. And I mean, we all just saw, or many of us saw, Governor Newsom, you know, in his comments about will Diablo Canyon close down in California? You know, is that going to happen? And you know, I know that's just the latest chapter in that book, but it's it's a question we're facing. So for me, I see nuclear deploying. But what geographies, what countries are going to invest, what countries are going to invest not just in the power plants, but in all the supply chains uh, to build the reactors, to build the fuel, um, and how will that position them for the future? Yeah. And so, Amy, as you were saying, then the really important thing is that we don't put all of our eggs in one basket. We do have to try a number of different approaches. We have to try a wide range of low-carbon energy technologies. So, Melissa, you just mentioned uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California talking about maybe possibly not shutting down the last nuclear reactor which is still operating in california diablo canyon which has been news that's been emerging over the last few days at the same time as california's electricity system has been very much in the headlines because of a near record that they hit on saturday over the weekend kaiso which is the california independent system operator the non-profit body that runs the grid in california has this fantastic website where you can look in pretty well real time what's happening on the grid in terms of what demand is and what supply is and what supply is coming from different sources even better actually uh, than the website they've got an app which i were, have downloaded recently which is the fantastic sort of energy nerds app where you can watch in, as I say, very nearly real time, what's going on on the grid in California. And it'll show you, in particular, a crucial bit of information, which is how much of the state's power demand is being met by renewable energy. Early in the afternoon on Saturday, that indicator hit a historic milestone because it went to 101%. In other words, renewable generation was providing more than the state's entire power demand. Roughly two thirds of that was coming from solar, about a quarter from wind, and the rest, bits and pieces, geothermal biomass, biogas, small-scale hydropower as well. The California definition of renewables doesn't actually include uh, large-scale hydro. Now, uh, since then, they've put out some other numbers. They've kind of recalculated the figures, and they suggest it was actually only 99.9% of demand that was being covered by renewables, but that's close enough. And on the one hand, then, you can say, well, this is fantastic. It's great news. This is California putting one foot in the future. It's planning to get to... 100% 100% carbon-free electricity on the grid by 2045. And look, they're showing that it can be done. On the other hand, they did only manage to achieve it for less than 15 minutes. And doing it around the clock, 365 days a year, is a very different matter. Gavin Newsom, California's governor, has been talking about Diablo Canyon maybe using federal funds to stay open. And there was some interesting context for that provided uh, on Monday by Sammy Roth, who you may know, is a very excellent energy reporter at the LA Times. And he got a statement from Kaiso basically saying that the grid in California is going to be short of 1.5 to 2 gigawatts of generation capacity between now and 2026. And the statement, I'll just read out this little bit from it here. They say, the past two summers have demonstrated that additional resources are needed to account for extreme conditions and supply delays which are not adequately captured in the traditional planning metrics. In other words, it's a reminder that California doesn't really have enough generation capacity, particularly won't have enough generation capacity if it shuts down Diablo Canyon. And that sort of all renewables future that they're talking about is still in the future. It hasn't arrived yet. Melissa, what did you think when you saw this and as you've been watching California? Is it good news? Is it something to cheer that they've got to very, very nearly 100% renewables on the grid? So I mean, I think it's great. It definitely is um, something that 15 years ago, it was like, oh, is the grid going to collapse if we do this? You know, those kind of conversations. Well, it's not like we've been able to keep it going. But uh, saying that I've seen a lot of statements out there saying California is 100% renewable now. It's 100% renewable powered and all the stuff you just said. But I've been equating it to saying I'm a vegetarian because I eat vegetarian for a day or for a meal. Like, that's great. Plant-based diets. The evidence says you're probably, you know, 
incrementally healthier. We didn't have, you know, emissions going out, those types of things. But you're not, I, I would argue you're not a vegetarian. And to say that we've now figured out how to have everyone on plant-based diets because you ate a veggie lunch is like, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. So I think we should celebrate it. We learn a ton from it every time it happens because we figure out how to operate the grid in those conditions, you know, with those types of resources. That's all excellent. Um, but it doesn't mean we're there yet. And I worry that it can be a bit misleading, like because we were 100% renewables for a minute or an hour or a day, oh, we can do it all the time, 24-7, 365. And the data just don't bear that out, at least not when you look across the entire country. Like the data just aren't there to support that. And they don't bear it out because what? Just there isn't enough capacity yet installed or because the nature of the wind and solar resource means it can't be done however much you build out? Well, and I should say, there's a really important caveat that I missed in what I just said, which is that you can do it. You can run off 100% you know, wind and solar or just wind even if you wanted to, but you're going to have either exceptionally high costs or low reliability. So you're going to have to deal with blackouts or you're going to have to deal with spiking electricity bills. So when you look through how do we get to 100% zero carbon electricity, you need three things. And listeners of the show have heard me say this a bunch of times, but it's you need variable renewables that keep everything cheap. You need your energy storage, including those short-term batteries and those 100-hour batteries and other things. But then you also need firm dispatchable power. And so it's saying that in some parts of the US, you've got some good firm dispatchable powers that is renewable. You can have some geothermal, you can have some hydro, um, big hydro that I know California's got their opinions on you know, whether you should count that or not in a renewables mix. You can also think about turning renewables into hydrogen. And that's something we could see in the future. But bottom line is like, in that moment, we supplied 100% of electricity with renewables, but we haven't cracked the problem of how to do that 24-7, 365 and keep the lights on and have the power be affordable. Technically, as an engineer, I can design you a system that will make you 100% renewables. Man, is it going to be expensive. Good night. Um, and most of us can't afford to do that. So maybe what do you think? Do you find these kind of stories uh, exciting, enthusing, or a bit misleading? Well, I think they're exciting for people like us and for probably most of the Energy Gang listeners who are following this stuff day in and day out and who have been following it for 15 years. But it comes off as a bit shocking, I think, to the, the lay person and, and fodder for critics when you see a headline that, you know, California's electricity ran for three minutes on renewable energy or however long it was. It's like only three minutes. Uh, and so I, I just think you lose the nuance. People understandably don't understand the nuances of, an of a complicated, boring electricity system. So I think for our crowd, it's, it's significant. It's, it's one small data point, but important data point on a much longer journey. So that's how I interpret it. I want to pick up something right there, too, about the journey you mentioned, Amy. And then, Ed, you had that quote about the gap that's expected in terms of energy supply capacity in the coming just few years. This comes back to, I don't know if you guys have been following it, and the information that's come out from Senator Manchin's meetings with some Democrats and Republicans. NEPA, how are we going to get all this stuff built, whatever it is, whether it's wind, solar, nuclear, other, you know, anything built, any infrastructure. Um, and I just don't want to miss that point in all this, because no matter where we are going in this journey that Amy's talking about, we need to build stuff. And that's tough right now, especially on the timeframes we're talking about to mitigate climate change. I completely agree. Melissa, you talked about how 100% wind or solar or wind and solar grid would be expensive and unreliable. I doubt whether or not it could actually be built because there's so much battles over wind and solar projects and the power lines. You know, I read this great story in Bloomberg about how this, this cattle ranch in Colorado fought this power line for 17 years. And then at the end of the story, they it was disclosed that they ended up selling the part of the the ranch that the power line would have crossed and i'm just like geez louise if we can't build a power line i mean i have a beautiful view of lake washington and there is a trans a, a power line right in front of my view and i don't mind one tiny bit and we all need to be more accepting of these things and so i think that's so difficult and then i'm like oh well maybe nuclear power advanced nuclear power is not so hard yeah, I think about what Emily Chasen says, you know, she's a regular member of the gang, appears on the show regularly. She says the mantra for clean energy is deploy, 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 as simple as that. And I do think that's so right that, yes, in some areas we need the new technologies, we need the advanced nuclear, the new kinds of storage, whatever it may be. Um, wind and solar are 
very, very well-established technologies still have an enormous part to play, can play a much bigger part than they are playing at the moment. We just need to get them out there in the ground. And as you say, all those kind of issues with planning and permitting and approvals and legal challenges and all those things that can stand in the way of deployment are really serious and really are threatening to the battle against climate change, to energy security, to everything um, that we're trying to do here, to affordability as well, to being able to put in investments that are going to bring down energy prices for people. You can't get this stuff built, then you can't make progress on any of that. So yeah, I do agree with that. And I, I you mentioned that meeting, Melissa. Um, you were mentioning the, um, the Joe Manchin meeting on sort of what next for climate policy, and it was bipartisan. And I think uh, Senator Mitt Romney was there, and Mitt Romney came out and talked to reporters and said, and was asked, you know, what's on the agenda and what are you discussing, and mentioned two things, which were one was carbon border adjustment, in other words taxing uh, high carbon imports into the US based on their carbon content. And the other was NEPA and reform of NEPA. And there was some pretty sort of skeptical and dismissive commentary about this. And people were kind of going, well, you know, that's all they're talking about. That doesn't really amount to it very much. I mean, yes, maybe it's not everything, but actually it's important. That stuff is important. And I think if you could put a tax on high carbon imports, and if you could really reform NEPA and everything that goes with it to make it possible to invest in a lot more wind and solar and transmission, that would make a huge difference in America. Well, it's kind of like if you build your car and you don't give it tires, <laughs> you know, to like go on the road. It's like, well, that was cool that you built it and it looks really good on blocks in your driveway, but like your point was getting on the road. So I'm like, if I create this amazing wind turbine and I cannot get it built and connected to the grid to supply power to someone, I'm an engineer, so I'll still think it's nifty as a technology. But when it comes to combating climate change and just keeping the lights on, like that's that's a problem. And so it's not just NEPA, I would say. It's all hosts of like permitting regulations, also incentive structures in our markets. It's this bucket I'll just call non-technical barriers. There's technical barriers to getting to 100% net zero to the end of this journey and along the way. But there's also a just huge bucket of non-technical barriers. And it's where I would I think it's fair to say we spend most of our day at the Center on Global Energy Policy in this work. So it's non-technical things. On the NEPA front, uh, I think that is going to be a significant fight within the environmental progressive part of this space. Uh, and that's because a lot of these organizations, Sierra Club, uh, Center for Biological Diversity, a lot of these organizations who say climate change is their top concern are fighting some of these projects due to endangered species, an endangered toad, in Nevada and a geothermal project. It's a toad versus a ge geothermal project, right? And that toad is important, but maybe climate change is more important. Those decisions will ultimately have to be made. And so I think, you know, just recently, the uh, Biden administration rolled back some NEPA reforms that the Trump administration put in place. And so we're just, it goes back to the bureaucratic wheel and how slow it turns, uh, but ultimately, you know, once an actual debate happens about NEPA changes, I think it's going to be a tough one and it needs to happen. So we had a, a listener message us on Twitter the other day, suggesting that one of the things we should do is a show talking about ways to minimize the impact on wildlife of renewable energy development, which I actually think is a fantastic idea for a subject. And I think we should definitely have a detailed discussion on that. And definitely, I think that's something we're going to come to uh, in a future show. Because as you say, not trying to say that the toads aren't important or, or the birds, you know, when you think about the impact of uh, wind turbines on bird populations and so on, these things are important and it's important to try and mitigate those impacts wherever we can. I just realized incidentally that we should also possibly just have a very quick footnote on NEPA. What is NEPA and why is it important? NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act of now, which year? 1970. Thank you very much for that. And the reason it's important, and I'm going to, well, go on, Amy, do, do, do you want to explain why it's important? Yeah, so, so NEPA really is the bedrock environmental law of this country. And just to underscore, it is incredibly important, as are the toads. I certainly don't want people to go away thinking after this podcast, I'm anti-toad. I'm very pro-toad. I'm also pro-acting on climate change. And so NEPA is so important because it provides local communities 
input on the environmental impacts of a host of different projects. I think the Keystone XL pipeline is perhaps the most infamous example of how there were multiple environmental impact statements that ultimately led to the, the, the rejection of that pipeline. And so it's an important policy, but over time, lawsuits and, and, and opposition, has, it has just grown to slow down projects. And so from my understanding, I know there's been efforts to try to put some time limits on the things that NEPA requires and just limits so that things can actually be built while not forgetting the impact and the input of local communities. Because as, as project developers that I talk to say, if you try to bulldoze over a local community, it will not work. And so communities need to have their input from the very beginning, but it needs to be done in a more timely fashion. And just a quick follow-up on that, I'll say uh, David Hill, who's an adjunct scholar at our center, uh, former general counsel at the Department of Energy, and he was at Energy and other places, he and I wrote a piece, and we highlighted this point, which is that NEPA doesn't decide if something is built. NEPA ensures that we have more information about the potential impacts and what we can do to mitigate those impacts before we build. And so it's not a go, no, go for launch. You can still build it out, even with tons of environmental impacts. Now, of course, you've got the Clean Water Act, you've got endangered species protections, all that stuff you have to consider, but it doesn't say you can't do it. It just requires that information be presented about what the likely impacts are going to be and what you might be able to do to minimize those impacts. And the administration does have some discretion, doesn't it, on how that act is applied and how the processes work Mm -hmm. through. Well, we can argue we can argue those pieces, right? So I think what the rollback of rules was saying that the Biden administration was saying we have to account for climate change in this. And their argument is that that is a full accounting. And we can debate back and forth about this. Bottom line is the rules keep changing and that does not help streamline processes. <laughs> if I if I'm aiming for target A and the midway to target A, it's like, oh, hard right or even like a three, four, five degree right. It's going to take me longer to get there than if I'd known where I was going the whole time. Final subject I want to talk about today is the question of supply chains. I was saying this earlier, when I've been talking to people who work in energy over the past few weeks, there's one subject that always comes up absolutely front of mind for people, which is this question of the availability of crucial equipment, components, and raw materials, both availability in the sense of can you get them at all? And also question of uh, what the price is and prices for Many of these things have been absolutely rocketing. We've had a series of huge shocks to the world trading system in rapid succession. We had the pandemic, of course, strong economic recovery from the pandemic. We had disruption caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And most recently, we've had the wave of lockdowns in China as COVID cases have surged there. The consequences of that have been very wide ranging across energy and across low carbon energy in particular. For instance, we've had manufacturers of wind turbines like Vestas and Siemens got their profits absolutely crushed. There was a good quote in a Bloomberg story recently from a colleague of mine at Wood Mackenzie, a guy called Aaron Barr, who was saying that uh, these companies have to be able to make profits if we're going to get investment in wind power to the scale that we need in order to shift the global energy system towards low carbon energy. Companies have to be able to make profits to do that. And if they're not making profits, that's a really bad sign. That's in wind, in solar power, we are seeing solar module prices, which have been some very, very long-term uh, downward trend for decades. That trend has been very clearly interrupted. Prices have gone up this year. And because of that, we think the US solar power market is going to shrink this year because of increased costs and uncertainty about supply chain. So really, none of what's going on at the moment in these global supply chains is good. Melissa, when you look at these kind of global supply chains, we were talking earlier about how the industry is globalized, energy is a globalized business, and inevitably has to be. How concerned are you that that global system isn't really working properly at the moment? I think what I'm mostly focused on is thinking about as we move forward, is the system going to be globalized or are we going to see this trend of deglobalization? And what does that mean? Because at the end of the day, when I think about supply chains, where I'm spending most of my time right now is actually, I guess it's at the very start of it all. So I'm thinking about mining right now. Like if you want to electrify an economy and you want to supply that electricity, but also rewire a bunch of houses and like build a bunch of stuff, you need, I don't know, we talk about lithium a lot. And if Elon Musk is going to be a mining, you know, magnet in the future, but what about copper? Like I need a lot of copper. I need a lot of very basic things. And so 
I know in our center, we've got a bunch of different fellows from, it's a global center, so from many parts of the world. And one of our distinguished visiting fellows, uh, Juan Carlos Jobet, is from Chile and talking about like what will be coming from Latin America? What what can be developed? You know, how do you develop minds in these places? How do you develop minds in the US for that? We talked about it with the uranium piece of it, but I'm thinking about those first steps. And then in the longer term, of course, we need to think about how batteries are produced, you know, from start to finish. Um, but how do we make sure we're just going to have the materials we need? Because when I think about this, like in the context of the Ukraine crisis that's playing out right now, if we have countries that are committing to accelerating electrification, accelerating decarbonization goals, we need a lot of materials to pull that off. Where are they coming from? So that's where my thoughts go. It's, it's really at the moment focused on mining and the first steps in all of this. But on that point then about where, where you say it's a deglobalization starting to happen, all these international supply chains breaking down, that's not going to happen completely, surely, simply because the no. resources are globalized. And we were saying earlier, the resources are not in the same places that the people are on the, where the demand is. So there's going to have to be some kind of international trade involved, isn't there? I, I think that's absolutely right. And the question is the degree to which um, and which country. So one of the conversations I've been asked by a number of people, you know, hey, could we do to China what we've done to Russia in terms of sanctions? And I default to Richard Nephew and Eddie Fishman and other people within Columbia and within the center who are experts on sanctions policy. But it's the idea of if you look at how connected our economies are to places like China and countries in Asia, like it is very difficult to do what we're doing with Russia in that context is, is the feedback that I'm getting. And it makes a modicum of sense to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, we are tied in pretty heavy across so many pieces of our economy. So not just a type of nuclear fuel or, you know, pieces of agriculture, all of which are serious, but it just extends across the entire economy. So when I think about the future, I can't see us going to this place where, you know, the United States or every country for that matter is, you know, only doing things within their country. That doesn't make sense. We will still be globalized to some degree. There will still be trade. But what's the overall trend and what's the trend in certain types of materials that we need? The raw materials from the mining, also the you know, converting that raw material into the thing we actually want, like where are those pieces going to live? So you think about the gigafactories that actually are just putting the cells together of the batteries. And it's like, well, where do those cells come from and where do the materials come from? So they're very dependent on other countries, predominantly in Asia. So what does that look like in the future? Amy, what do you think about this? How worried should we be about reliance on China in particular for a lot of these low carbon technologies? Well, I think it's something that just from a factual perspective, China has been leading on new clean energy technologies for a very long time. We have been losing this race for a decade at least. Uh, and th that goes back to some of the other things that we've been talking about today. China has a different form of government that isn't so slow and is obviously not democratic. So the Chinese government can do things that America was quite intentionally not going to do. And so being able to change to to change that and to to catch up to china will be an extremely difficult proposition not impossible but so i i so i just think that's important to emphasize and in terms of concern i mean i i certainly echo melissa um in terms of my I'm not a geopolitical expert but uh, a, a couple of years ago the international renewable energy agency IRENA, not to be confused with IEA, the International Energy Agency, IRENA released a report about the shifting geopolitics of renewable energy. And from that, I wrote up a story who the headline was, China could be the new OPEC of the clean energy world. Now, that's a little dramatic because, again, OPEC controls, you know, is the deciding factor largely in a com commodity of oil. Uh, but nonetheless, um, it's that's where we are now. And that's we're seeing that bubble up with the tariffs that the Biden administration and Obama and Trump. Uh, look at that. It might be the only three things that Biden and Obama and Trump all agree on is that solar panels from China should have tariffs on them. And now we're seeing an investigation which is slowing down the solar industry here in the U.S. So I, I think there's a lot going on here. Uh, and I just I find it difficult to turn the tide away from China. Seems like. There's a very difficult balance to strike here between developing your own domestic manufacturing production capacity, supporting your development, and getting as much solar power installed as quickly as possible, which means relying on the lowest cost panels wherever they're made, and, and generally that would be in Asia. How do you think you get that balance right? 
Well, I think for solar, the ship has already sailed. So you're going to have to sail the ship back uh, to turn the tide. And that will be extremely difficult, not impossible. But what you need is consistent government policies year after year, administration after administration for decades. And that's very difficult when our politics are so extreme and everything swings back and forth. I will say a sort of a bright spot here is perhaps offshore wind, where there is some domestic manufacturing being established in places like the Northeast, where we're seeing a new industry being built. So unfortunately, uh, we've just about got to end it there. Before we do, though, need, as usual, to hear your free electrons, some personal things that you've brought in that you've been uh, struck by and think are interesting over the past couple of weeks. Uh, Melissa, what's yours? My partner is looking at a cyber truck. Okay, so I talked about the electric Winnebago a few months ago. We really like our travel trailer. It's fiberglass, it's light, it's lovely. Our kiddo loves it. Everybody's happy in that thing. So we've been looking at what we could do for a tow vehicle. And so we're looking at the cyber truck and the Ford. And the one challenge we've run into is right now we have to unhitch our trailer to actually charge the vehicle we choose that would tow the trailer, which is adds to the overall time frame of getting things done because of how superchargers are set up and all that stuff. So we're thinking through that, hoping someone comes up with a solution. But um, the website yesterday for the Cybertruck crashed on us for about six hours. And I'm wondering how many other people it happened to. And to me, I'm like, wow, demand is up. <laughs> like, I wonder where these things are going because it's like a $100 deposit or something to like get on the Cybertruck list. So those are the things I've been looking into industry and that trucks. is very interesting i've seen a little bit of commentary saying that the cyber truck is kind of being eclipsed as being outflanked by now the electric f-150 and people got very excited about oh, that and man. saying maybe tesla is sort of uh looking a little bit um behind the curve with that one but maybe not maybe maybe don't write the cyber truck off just yet Ford's making some moves as a company that are fascinating. I don't know if you guys saw their flexible workplace arrangement, come in to collaborate and leave to do deep thinking stuff. I feel like they're really pushing forward as a company in a really interesting way. So I, I mean, they're doing they're doing a good job. We'll see we'll see how this uh this how this ride goes in the next couple of years. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Well, keep us posted on your decision making then. I'll let you know. It's complex. We have spreadsheets. <laughs> Not surprising. My partner's an economist. I'm an engineer. We have big spreadsheets <laughs> with weighting factors. You know, Never made a decision as sensibly as that in our household. <laughs> uh, Amy, what's yours? Well, mine's also uh, an electric vehicle topic. Last year, I guess it was, when I was still writing for Axios, I wrote a column about my journey buying a versatile, affordable, and efficient car. I ultimately went with the Toyota Prius, which some people were disappointed I didn't try to go fully electric. One key reason why I didn't, one, because I live in an apartment building that doesn't have charging. But number two, my family has a cattle ranch four hours away, and there's really no charging stations in the town, the tiny little town of Sprague, has 300 people, no traffic lights. Uh, there's really just no charging infrastructure there uh, or many in between. But breaking news, Sprague just got um, some charging stations. Uh, I was there the um, uh, most recent weekend and I stopped and took photos. So stay tuned. It'll be the energy week, um, energy photo of the week in an upcoming edition of Cypher. So I think that's really exciting. I'm not sure what people are going to do while they're charging up their vehicles because there's nothing to do in Sprague. <laughs> but there's a grocery store, one grocery store, and it needs more business. So hopefully they will get more business. Yeah, which people have been saying, right, that the um, if you think of it like putting gas in a car, then charging up an EV seems like a very slow process. If you're thinking about it like going to the store, doing some shopping, getting a coffee, it doesn't seem so bad. And as you say, building those other activities around it, I'm sure is going to be important. So how do you like the Prius? Have you got on with it? Are you, or are you going to look to uh, trade it in for a Cybertruck anytime soon? Well, I did lease it. So I have the ability to trade it in. I don't like the way the Cybertruck looks. Sorry, Melissa, but um, I commend those who do like it. I'm with you. I, I hope to, if I'm able to live in a place that I can plug in easily, I, the Subaru Crosstrek, Subaru needs to get on board with the electric vehicle transition. They're a bit slow. Uh, Subaru, though, is high clearance, so I can go places where I can go hiking. Uh, but but I like the Prius. It You know, I know it's not brand new technology, but it, it serves my needs. And I also think it's important that people say what they need and say what they want, um, as opposed to just pretending to, to want something because it's the right clean thing to do. 
Good, good. So look, my uh, free electron is much less practical. It's going back to the nuclear issue. And it's something I've been thinking about in connection to this issue of uh, nuclear waste. And the reason I've been thinking about that is because I did, did you see this thing which came up when they were doing the renovations of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, and obviously the repairs after the massive fire they had there, they found under the floor, this huge lead coffin from the Middle Ages. But it's very, very unusual to bury people in a lead coffin. And so there's a kind of real mystery about what this thing is and who's buried in it, why it's there. And archaeologists have been saying, well, it's fascinating. Let's open it up. Let's open it up and take a look inside. To which other people have been saying, are you really sure you want to do that? And people have been raising the parallel with what you do about nuclear waste if you're going to bury it in deep storage repositories where you want it to stay for tens of thousands of years, and it's going to remain hazardous for tens of thousands of years, and you want to be able to communicate to future generations far in the future that this is a bad place, you don't want to dig it up, it's not going to go well for you if you do have your archaeological dig and uh, uncover this nuclear waste and bring it back to the surface again. And the question then is, how do you communicate that idea to people who will be massively different from us, who have completely different cultures? You think how much the world has changed in the past 10,000 years, um, what it might be like 10,000 years from now. And a really fascinating exercise to work out then how you communicate this idea. And there's various things people have got that are doing stick pictures and a stick person digging a hole and then falling over and things like that. And that's probably, you know, reasonably good. But the other thing that has been done in this is is attempts at language and written descriptions in English to try and send messages to people. And there's this fantastic text that I came across, which was written in 1993 from the Sandia National Laboratory in the US, which is the message meant to be for future generations, which is just, all of it is brilliant. I'll read a little bit of it. It says, this place is a message and part of a system of messages. Pay attention to it. Sending this message was important to us. We considered ourselves to be a powerful culture. This place is not a place of honour. No highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing valued is here. What is here was dangerous and repulsive to us. This message is a warning about danger. Which is, I mean, it's fantastic. My problem with this is, I just think it's such great prose. It's going to make you want to open it up, right? It's kind of like, well, this sounds pretty cool. (laughs) I, I just don't know that that's going to be an effective deterrent. But anyway, I think it is a really interesting, fascinating question about how you deal with that issue in nuclear power. And it is, of course, still waste management and how you think about long-term waste management is one of the things that we haven't really cracked yet with nuclear is definitely one of the significant downsides. So, but as I say, I thought it's really interesting to think about how we might accomplish that. So we do have to leave it there then. Um, That's all from the Energy Gang for this week. Thanks very much, Melissa. Thanks, Ed, uh, Ed, Amy. It's great being on here. Thank you very much, Amy, for joining us. Great to be here. I look forward to next time. And many thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, As usual, please do let us know what you think. Give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. As I say, I think we've got one great idea from a listener already for something we're going to be doing on a future show. We're on Twitter still at, at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>